This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, journalist and historian Simon Seabag Montefiore discusses his new book, The Romanovs, from 1613 to 1918. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot gets us ready for BEA. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So uh, in fiction, we've got a new number one. It's The Last Mile by David Baldacci. Uh, we call it in our review a so-so sequel to Memory Man, which uh, is a book from 2015. Um, and uh, the, the protagonist is Amos Decker, a former professional football player whose career-ending injury left him with some unusual abilities, including an almost perfect memory. Now, I know a lot of football fans who really wish that head injuries worked that way, but generally speaking... They do not. It kind of uh, gets a kind of goes against everything that is being reported and talked about right now. It it, it does a little bit. If I <laughs> yeah. were a football fan, I might not be so right. thrilled with this right. depiction. Uh, we also say that despite his extra brain power, Decker doesn't leave much of an impression, and this entry will work best for readers with a taste for improbable resolutions. But Baldacci is always a bestseller that's at number one with 57,000 copies sold. Uh, by comparison, Nora Roberts' is The Obsession, which was number one last week, uh, sold 24,000 copies this week. Mm. So um, you know, Baldacci just uh, keeps raking in the readers and the sales. Uh, at number six, we have Eligible, a modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice by Curtis Suttenfeld. Um, I, I confess that I was complaining to Mark that uh, you know, here's this guy who rewrote... <laughs> Pride and Prejudice getting all this attention, and it turns out Curtis Sittenfeld is actually Elizabeth Curtis Sittenfeld, writing under a male name. Uh, Anyway, in this book, uh, Elizabeth Bennett writes for a women's magazine, Jane teaches yoga, Lydia and Kitty are CrossFit enthusiasts on paleo diets, and uh, there's even reality TV star heartthrob Chip Bingley. So um, this is modern, with an emphasis on modern, uh, really a very, very 21st century retelling. We say that in our review that Sittenfeld adeptly updates and channels Austin's narrative voice. The book is full of smart observations on gender and money. Uh, And this is overall a clever retelling of an old-fashioned favorite. However, uh, it offers amusing details and provocative choices, but little of the penetrating insight into underlying values and personalities that makes Austin inimitable. So uh, that's uh, there at number six. At number eight, we have Warhawk, a Tucker Wayne novel um, by James Rollins and Grant Blackwood. This is the sequel to The Kill Switch from 2014. Uh, and it's a new state-of-the-art threat to former Army Ranger Tucker Wayne and his canine partner, Kane. Mm. Uh, say that three times fast. Uh, the action ranges for the swamps of Alabama and New Mexico nuclear test sites to the beaches of Trinidad 
and the mountains of Serbia. And we say that Kane, a Belgian Malinois, is the standout character, more than just a plot device, never anthropomorphized. And I'm a cat person and not a dog person, but I've been astonished by how much people love books with dogs in them. I see romances with dogs in them. We get these thrillers with dogs in them. It, it, it doesn't matter. People gobble them up. So uh, yeah, that plus James Rollins' name uh, is enough to push that to number eight. At number 11, we have Till Death Do Us Part by Amanda Quick. We gave this a starred review, calling it an ambitious Victorian historical that mixes witty, occasionally self-referential banter with gothic undertones and a solid thriller plot. Uh, And Quick also throws in a great deal of humor, including uh, some wonderful running gags and a large cast of well-rounded characters, as well as lots of excellent red herrings. This is a romance as well as a historical thriller, so there's a little something in there for everyone. Uh, Amanda Quick writes under a number of other names, including Jane Ann Krentz, Jane Castle. Um, She's incredibly prolific and uh, nice to see her on the top of her game. Number 17, another book that got a starred review from us, Maestro by L.S. Hilton. And we say the talents of Judith Rashley, the sardonic narrator of Hilton's deliciously high Smithian thriller, are clearly underutilized. She's an assistant at a top London art auction house and a hostess as, at a seedy nightclub. Uh, but a mark that she hooks at the club proves to be her ticket to the Riviera, and she discovers a femme fatale facility that surprises even herself. Uh, and uh, we say that Hilton artfully conjures a glossy world where just about everything and everyone has its price. This title has already been optioned by Sony Pictures and has sold rights in more than 25 countries. So, uh, and that was wow. you know, as of when our review went up a couple months ago. So, uh, definitely lots and lots of buzz. Uh, number 20, we have The White Donkey, Terminal Lance by Maximilian Uriarte. Uh, he's a, a former Marine who served in Iraq, and uh, this is actually a graphic novel or a series of oh, wow. graphic stories. Uh, we say that right. he, he combines a casual, straightforward, dramatic style with clear, no-frills art that draws readers into his characters' everyday experiences and then wallops them with the tragedy of ordinary life. And uh, I think this started out as a... a uh, he developed a big following uh, online, um, creating a, a webcomic called Terminal Lance uh, that began running in Marine Corps yeah. times. Um, and uh, at the same time, he began working on this book uh, and launched a Kickstarter to support it. And within 13 hours, he'd reached his first goal. So clearly a lot of interest in these graphic stories about Marines. Uh, and wow. uh, that one's it, we gave it a starred review and uh, it'll be very interesting to see where, where he goes um, certainly very impressive but, for for a debut book yeah and a great start a great story behind the book too mm-hmm. yeah so lots lots of interest yeah. there um, and finally just wanted to make a note at number 22 uh, book 5 of My Struggle by Carl Ove Nosgaard translated from Norwegian mm. for uh, English speaking audiences and uh, this is the penultimate entry in his autobiographical series. We give this a star, and uh, you said the narrative, like the protagonist, strikes an impressive balance between interior and exterior, as well as between cerebral and emotional. Uh, and we said those who have come this far in the series will not be disappointed by book five. It is a pleasure to witness the gradual emergence of a dedicated artist over the course of a decade. So uh, anticipation clearly building yep. for the sixth and final book. Yeah, and it's been uh, just kind of interesting looking at the fiction list and the number of stars that 
corresponded with the uh, how, how many stars did you say we had on the bestseller list? That's not always the case. That is definitely not always the case. Um, and speaking of which, uh, books that uh, are critically recognized but not necessarily bestsellers, the Pulitzer went uh, this year to some books that uh, had uh, that were selling in. The, the triple digits as in a few hundred copies a week and uh, gave them some serious bumps. Uh, the fiction, The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen as up from 25 a week to 1100 a week. That's so yeah. uh, that is, that is a 46 hundred mm-hmm. percent increase. Right. Very impressive. And, um, the history title is up from uh, 133 last week to 816 units sold this week. Uh, same deal with biography, poetry, general nonfiction. Um, all of those books got big, big, big Thanks. Pulitzer bumps. Yeah, that's great. Um, so uh, nice to see uh, that sometimes the critical recognition or the award recognition can lead to some sales. Yeah, exactly. And especially after, you know, a year after the book's been published to give it a nice little uh, bump. So. Nonfiction. So the highest debut we have is 16. And the title of this is Eat Dirt, Why Leaky Gut May Be the Root Cause of Your Health Problems and Five Surprising Steps to Cure It by Josh Axe. So it's a, a, a kind of unsettling subtitle. Perhaps slightly. They say he's a doctor of uh, natural medicine. We don't have a review of this. And the authority, uh, a wellness authority, delivers a groundbreaking, indispensable guide for understanding, diagnosing, and treating one of the most discussed yet little understood health conditions, leaky gut syndrome. Now, I've heard a lot about that recently, but I'm still not really clear on what it is. What it is, is, uh, as they described here, is the cause of uh, a litany of ailments, including chronic inflammation, allergies, autoimmune disease, hypothyroidism, adrenal fatigue, diabetes, and arthritis. So. Sure. A list of things. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm always a little skeptical of these health claims, but certainly that doesn't stop people from buying the books. Yeah, exactly. So that's at number 16. Then we have at number 20, Game of Crowns, Elizabeth, Camilla, Kate, and the Throne by Christopher Anderson. He's a best-selling author of William and Kate and The Day Diana Died, who writes lots of books on uh, English royalty, British royalty. So, uh, And this is a uh, what they say is a, a readable look into the relationships of and rivalries of Queen Elizabeth, Camilla Parker Bowles, and Kate Middleton. So, There are definitely people who are fans of the royals the way that they're fans of books or movies. Yes, um, this is true. Uh, it's quite an obsession for yeah, some folks. Yeah, exactly. And uh, goes right to ta- – I mean, a lot of the – it's healthy for tabloids as well. Yes. So uh, the Matthews Men at number 26, Seven Brothers and the War Against Hitler's U-Boat by William Giroux. It's a journalist who combines the skills of a newsman and those of a scholar to tell the story of the vital and heroic role played by the U.S. Merchant Marines during World War II. This is from our review. We say that he leaves no doubt that the ocean was as unforgiving as the U-Boats as was a Congress that failed to extend veterans' benefits to merchant mariners until 1988. So we gave this a a nice review, and it's at number 26. And that's basically what we have on the nonfiction list. All right. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Simon Seabag Montefiore tells us how the notorious Romanals rose and fell. We'll be right back. I'm Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. 
And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Simon Seabag Montefiore on the line. His new book is The Romanovs, 1613 to 1918. Simon, I'm so glad you could join us. Lovely to be with you. So tell us about your book, uh, which has been described as a blood-spattered, gold-plated, diamond-studded, swashbuckled, bodice-ripping, and star-crossed chronicle of fathers and sons, megalomaniacs, monsters, and saints. That is quite a mouthful. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a history of, um, of the Romanov dynasty from 1613 to 1918, uh, and it, it is the story of over 20 Tsars and Tsarinas who rule Russia. And by telling the story of Russia uh, through its monarchs, its top generals, its top artists, I wish to show... Um, how Russia came to be the Russia of today, um, how Putin fits into uh, the pattern of Russian history, why Russia is different. But it's also a story of these fascinating individuals, a story of power, a story of family. Um, and in some ways, it's about autocracy and, and monarchy, but it's also really about universal, a universal portrait of the way that power works. Um, it's a history uh, based on scholarship, based on archives, and containing many new archival revelations. Um, but it's also uh, written to be read by everyone. It's, it's popular history, and I hope everyone enjoys reading it. It's been said that uh, even after the revolution, the Russians, uh, the Russian people still look to the Politburo as if it were a czar. So in, in ways, uh, uh, it took a little while for them, uh, for, for the people of Russia to change. But I, I, I'd like to go back to that very first, that, that's uh, 1613, uh, with the first Romanov dynasty, which you write about, uh, had its foundings in a faraway monastery. Yes. I mean, it's beginning, um, you've got to imagine Russia was in a state of complete uh, 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 sort of disintegration, civil war, every neighbor was invading, the Russian state had failed. And so um, an assembly was called, and they elected a, a really kind of unsuitable person to be czar, not a swaggering warlord, um, but a boy, a boy um, who was sickly, not particularly clever, a, a bit of a non-entity, um, uh, a bad leg, a facial tick, uh, and, and was not particularly clever either. And this boy was chosen to be the czar. And it was, it was really, the, the ironic, it was ironic that it was really his weakness, his obscurity, his, and of course his connection to the um, extinct Rurikid royal dynasty that made him perfect because he, his candidacy, the candidacy offended nobody, and that's why he was elected. So that was how the Romanov dynasty began. But in answer to your, your, your question about the Politburo, um, this book um, takes, uh, takes the story of Russian leadership, Russian uh, monarchy autocracy, right up to today. Um, you know, I've written um, biographies of Stalin and of Catherine the Great, and this now um, takes... Um, the Romanov dynasty, obviously, up to the, its, its overthrow in 1917, its destruction and the massacre in 1918. But then we look in the epilogue at, at the way leadership works there, and I take it right through the Politburo, through Lenin, through Stalin, Yeltsin, and right up to Putin, and right up to, to, the, to the day. 
So you you mentioned Catherine the Great, and uh, she's also a significant player in this book. Tell us a little bit about her and about, uh, we say in our review, that she went from being a, a regicidal German usurper to becoming one of Russia's most successful rulers. How did how did that happen? Well, you, you know, you're right on that. That's a very good description. Um, she, you know, she really, really is an extraordinary figure, a lovable figure. Um, she's humane. She's enlightened. She's, she's as, as a political analyst, as a political practitioner, she's she's a genius. And not many families have have uh, one genius, yet alone two. But the Romanovs have Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. Mm. Um, she everything she says is interesting. Everything she says is is, is super intelligent. Um, but also, you know, she had charm. She had um, she had the ability to understand the art of the possible. You know, she was married to this impossible man. She was just a German princess who was brought to Russia to marry uh, a puny, poxy German grandson of Peter the Great, and therefore the heir to the Russian throne. And, you know, she was also German. She had no connection to the Romanov family. And yet she turned herself into the Russian candidate for the throne. She became incredibly popular at court. Um, the guards backed her. And when her husband, Peter III, succeeded to the throne and within six months alienated every single key part of Russian society, they turned to her and she became the center of a whirl of coup coup plans, which in the end placed her on the throne. Wow, that's that's quite a story. But uh, it really, it seems like people were uh, very right to trust her in some ways and to see her as much more of a a potential ruler than her husband. That's right. I mean, she was incredibly able, incredibly charming, attractive. Um, people, you know, men fell in love with her, and she charmed women too. It was brilliant. She understood that court was about was about personality, about winning friends and influencing people. To coin a phrase, uh, to borrow a phrase, and you know, she she um you know she understood that politics is about um, appeasing different interest groups. And she was a master at that. She was a master at using the court as a way to reward people, to attract people, to win people over, um, and to conciliate them if they disapproved of her. So though she came to power in a, in a, in a coup d'etat, using violence, backed by her lover Orloff and, and, and his friends in the guards, um, though she overthrew the, um, the legitimate emperor, and though you know, her friends then murdered him, she then emerged as, um, as, as a ruler who, who gradually became almost legitimate. Um, and partly she was legitimized by her political brilliance, partly by her charm, partly, and partly by success, her towering success as a ruler. Um, she conquered southern Ukraine. She annexed Crimea. Um, she took Poland. She defeated the Swedes. And she had, she had nerves of steel, of course. But she was always generous. And then, of course, you know, there's also the love life, which is, which is, of course, fascinating. Mm. So you had mentioned uh, uh, Catherine in the same uh, sentence as Peter the Great, as, as two of the great, uh, uh, better-known czars. Uh, tell us a little bit how Peter the Great fits into your, your history. Well, Peter the Great was, was, you know, really the third czar of the Romanov dynasty. Um, you know, as a, as a boy... Um, he, he was he was brought up as the loved youngest son of the young wife of the um, of the Tsar Alexei, but after his father's death, 
he witnessed terrible violence um, in front of him. His his um, his own un- his uncles and um, his his trusted ministers um, were thrown onto the raised pikes of the um, musketeers in the Kremlin. So, you know, he was damaged from an early age by by the, by seeing terrible violence, and he grew up um, justifiably vigilant and believing in violence as a as a method of of reforming, of leading, of modernising a country. He was himself an extraordinary character. You know, he was six foot seven, twitching, um, twitching, um, you know, he had a twitching face. He was epileptic and he was capable of amazing feats of sort of drinking, carousing, um, fornicating, and then getting up the next morning and um, working incredibly hard. He was one of those rare politicians who both know what they want, have a vision, and have the ability to make it happen, which, which as we know, is is um, is quite unusual. So, really, an extraordinary figure, um, terrifying person, um, who you know often took part in tortures himself, who beheaded people himself, um, who who tortured his own son and heir to death. Um, but in other ways, really admirable and and, and 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 a really a gripping person to write about, and I hope to read about. Mm. And it sounds a couple of similarities between Peter and Catherine, uh, uh, their personalities, uh, uh, other than the, the, the torture of, of his own son, which, which Catherine did not do, but also no. their, their sexual prowess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Catherine, you know, Catherine the Great's love life has attracted a lot of attention, and of course, um, you know, she's, she's a fascinating person to many modern women. For example, you know, Barbara Streisand wants to make a movie of her. Madonna worships her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angela, uh, and Angelina, um, Jolie has bought the rights to my other book on Catherine the Great and Potemkin. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to make a movie of it. So, of course, she's, she's fascinating. She's extremely modern. But, mm-hmm. um, the love life is very interesting. I mean, you know, part of her genius was finding people to delegate to people to work with, men to, men to run her country with her. And, you know, her choice um, of Prince Potemkin as her lover, you know, really kind of signals her sort of brilliant um, personnel selection, which is such an important part of politics. He, he became her lover, and their letters are extraordinary, both sexually outrageous, but also full of love, full of um, political wisdom, full of planning, um, buying art, um, discussing their health, discussing their sex lives. Um, but he also became the greatest minister that the Romanov dynasty ever had. You know, he colonized the South. He conquered South Ukraine. He took the Crimea. He founded Sebastopol. He founded the Black Sea Fleet and made Russia into a Near Eastern power. So, you know, he and Catherine were sort of the equivalent of Peter the Great. What Peter the Great did, founding Petersburg, founding the Baltic Fleet, they did in the South. And, you know, we see, we see the results of that in Putin's intervention in, 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 in Crimea and in Syria today. You know, in, it's, it's forgotten often that in 1772, she bombarded the, um, the Syrian coast and actually occupied Beirut. But, of course, the love life is, is, is most fascinating. And, you know, the way that the system she set up where she, she sort of married Potemkin, ran the country with him, and yet had all these young lovers um, for the rest of her reign, um, made her notorious, but somehow it worked. So the Romanov dynasty came to an end, uh, as you say, in the early 20th century. Play out those events for us insofar as they can be summarized. Obviously, a lot was going on. Well, I mean, I mean, the, you know, the first 10 years of the last Tsar's reign, Nicholas II, who was married to Alexandra, 
were relatively successful. He advanced into, um, into, into, into Manchuria, into Korea, and it looked like he was about to keep expanding this ever-expanding empire, which now ruled a sixth of the world's surface. And one forgets that until then, um, you know, the, the Romanovs had really been the most successful dynasty of modern times. Not the cursed kind of farcical dynasty that we think of. But in 1904, he, he totally miscalculated and was defeated by the Japanese in, 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 in a war um, that humiliated the dynasty and, and heralded the 1905 revolution, which forced him to, to, um, to, to, give, to give his people a, a constitution, which he then spent the rest of his reign trying to undermine and claw back his powers. Um, you know, he, he, was, he was an extremely um, weak, um, spineless, um, duplicitous, and slippery um, ruler. He believed in sacred autocracy long after that idea was was, was obsolete. Um, his wife was an extremely um, unlucky, but also um, a, 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 but also unwise advisor, who, whose influence increased um, throughout his reign. Um, they had longed for an heir, a male heir, and they got one um, in, the, in, in Alexei, their son. But he had hemophilia, mm. so so um, so they kept that secret. Um, but obviously, the strain of keeping this secret and the strain of his illness put them under immense pressure. Put put the boy under immense pressure too. Um, and and they turned to Rasputin as a private advisor, as partly a face healer for the child. But increasingly, and this is where I, this is a story that I show, um, you know, I, I highlight in the book. But increasingly, he was really someone who the, the couple, the imperial couple, needed almost as much as their son did. And they turned to him increasingly as a political advisor. When they entered World War I, um, uh, Nicholas made the mistake of going to command the army at the front. And trusting nobody, and having lost all the trust of all the political um, body, the body politic of Russia, he turned to, to Alexandra to run, run Petersburg in the rear and she turned to Rasputin to advise her, mm. which, which, is, which is shown in their fascinating letters, which I use a lot in the book, which I think readers will just be gobsmacked at how crazy um, Alexandra was, um, how unwise, um, how rigid and addictive she was. Um, and I think people will be amazed about Nicholas Alexandra. You know, the, the old-fashioned portrait of them as kind of wonderful, loving family with this, with this sick child you know, really doesn't stand up to sort of proper analysis. You know, they were vicious anti-Semites, especially Nicholas. Um, they were extremely duplicitous. They were extremely foolish in so many ways. They were, they were, they were crazily rigid. And in the end, you know, Alexandra, more than anyone, destroyed the prestige of the dynasty, which heralded um, the murder of Rasputin and then the revolution itself in, in, in early 1917. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Simon Sebag Montefiore, author of The Romanovs, 1613 to 1918. He's done an amazing job of taking us through those 300 years in summary. Um, so you mentioned these letters a lot. Tell us yeah. about your research process and how you dug up those letters. Well, I mean, um, one of the exciting things about writing these sort of books is you know, not to take... Um, not to take the sort of accepted conventional wisdom of, of any of the, of, of any of these stars, but actually to go back and look at them as human beings, but also as politicians. And the book is based on all these, on all these, um, archives. Um, some published in the 19th century in historical journals, some very well known, and many, um, never published before, which reveal fascinating things. Um, there's a, there's a series of great correspondences. There's Peter the Great's correspondence with his wife and mistress Catherine the First. There's Catherine the Great's correspondence with, with Prince Potemkin, her lover and co-ruler. Um, there's Alexander the First, he's the Tsar of War and Peace. Um, there's his correspondence with his sister that was almost incestuous, but is very fascinating about the French invasion and the, and the, and the, and the, and the war with Napoleon. And of course there's Nicholas and Alexandra. Um, and their correspondence, which is, as I said, reveals them to be sort of, you know, really more incompetent, more foolish, and more mad than you could possibly imagine, um, which I've used thousands of in the, le- in the book. And, you know, to give you an example of the sort of new material, one of the most fascinating is the correspondence between Emperor Alexander II and his mistress, Katia. Now, he's an interesting character. He freed the serfs, he emancipated the serfs in almost exactly the same time as President Lincoln was, um, was emancipating the, the slaves in America. And the two of them were actually in correspondence. They admired each other. Um, and both were assassinated, of course. So interesting. But this correspondence with him and his mistress and future wife um, has never really been used um, before. Um, it has only recently been returned to the Russian archives. And it, it is, it's, it's touching, it's loving. It also happens to be the most sexually explicit and outrageous correspondence, I think, ever written by a head of state anywhere. Wow. And, and I think if you, if you read it, you'll see what I mean. There's stuff in there that I didn't think had been invented until this century. Um, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll have, to, you'll have to find out. But I think if you read it, you'll see what I mean. Well, this this is not what I would have expected from a book on Russian history. Is is this is this something that you're using to promote the book? Because uh, I I admit that when I when I looked it over, I was not I was not expecting the sort of James Joyceian correspondence here. Yeah, no, I mean, I just found the correspondence. I, I was just amazed by it. Um, and of course, I you know one of the difficult things about reading these correspondences. I mean, for example, Nicholas and Alexandra, you know, they have. They have private names for their genitalia, and they write about sex quite a lot. And yet, they're very, very kind of um, prudish Victorians in public. And one of the interesting things about this is, you know, as a historian, you read these things, and you think, like, what do I do with this? You know, should I be reading this? Should I blush when I read this? Or, you know, should I respect privacy? Or should I show them as they really were in by reading these correspondences? But, of course, they never believed anyone would ever read. So it's like reading, it's like reading private texts or emails in our era. And of course, you know, one wants to show, um, these people to, in a balanced way. So I, I hope that I show them both as political, as personal people, and also this window into their secret lives, you know, which, which of course is fascinating. 
It really is. I mean, and this is your fourth book on Russian or, or Soviet history. And uh, your others you had mentioned, there was uh, young Stalin, Stalin, the court of the Red Tsar, and uh, Catherine the Great Potemkin. What, 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 what draws you to this subject? What draws you to, uh, uh, to Russian and Soviet history? Well, I've also, as you know, written about Jerusalem, written the history of Jerusalem, but I, but I am very fascinated by Russia, and I think it comes from my my mother's family who were actually refugees from the from the pogroms, um, uh, catalogued and chronicled in this book. I mean, they left Russia in 1904, escaping from the 1903-1904 pogroms, and so I was always brought up with a feeling that um, I was connected to Russia. And a fascination with with Russian culture and 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 literature, and you know, obviously, this book is, you know, what I hope is unique about this book is it's also a sort of history of, you know, art, diplomacy, war, you know, the dynasty, um, politics, all of it together. And so many, you know, many artistic figures, Pushkin and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and, and Tchaikovsky, are characters in the book too. You know, you're right. I mean, I was always drawn to this. And from a young age, I wanted to write biographies of Catherine the Great and Stalin. And so, um, amazingly, I got the opportunity to do that, to go into the archives and find new stuff that people hadn't, um, hadn't used before. And, and that's a great privilege and, and a great joy for a writer. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, you wrote the Jerusalem, the biography, also a general history book called Titans of History, and you've written four books of fiction, uh, including a couple inspired by Russia. So how do you decide whether to explore a particular historical topic in fiction or in this kind of narrative nonfiction? I mean, I'm primarily a historian, uh, and I've, you know, I take my history very, very seriously. I, I you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a historian from Cambridge University, and um, and you know, I'm, you know, I, I believe that the first sort of rule of all of these things is that you know that, that the history has to be right. It has to be academically based. It has to be based on scholarship and archive. Um, you know, and, and that's rule number one. Um, what, once that foundation is laid, I really um, see myself as someone who who should who wants to make history exciting for young people, for old people, and who doesn't write for experts. And, you know, and, 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 and I also believe that, you know, narrative history, popular history, the history of individuals is a great way to understand the sweep of history and to, and to explain really complex ideas, which, which, which I hope are explained, for example, in this book, The Romanovs. But you can also, I'd be also be delighted and not at all insulted if people regarded this as an entertainment, as an exciting read. That would also be my dream come true because I sweat blood once I've done this. Once I've done the scholarly research, I sweat blood to make this accessible to everyone. Mm. So, do, do you really intend these books for um, readers of all ages? Because uh, perhaps with some of the more risque material, um, maybe for <laughs> um, teens and up. Not for seven-year-olds, no. <laughs> Probably but, um, not. But you know, the, but my books are used are now used in many schools and universities actually for sort of a, you know for, for sort of the last couple of years of school and and university. And I, I think readers are, you know, readers from sort of 16 upwards are sort of really kind of, um, are really capable of understanding the complexities of a human character, um, you know, to, to do evil, to do good. And, and they don't need to be kind of, they don't need to be fed even, they need, they need to be shown rounded characters. And that's what I try to do. 
I mean, for example, there are no heroes. There are no um, there are no um, lessons from history if you only present people with kind of you know um, cardboard cutouts of characters. For example, you know, when I wrote about Stalin, I showed him the complete human, the complete human being, and people understood from that that he was a monster much more clearly than if I'd presented him just as that. Right. Sure. And through your research for this book, um, what did you uncover that just completely surprised you? Um, I think the thing that most surprised me was, you know, was something I already mentioned, which was this just um, really the misrule. I mean, like, you know, during World War One, just you know, America was about to join the war. Um, you know, there was there was there was fascists and, uh, and and sort of stalemate on the Western Front. Um, all the Western, all the great powers were struggling with shell shortages and, and a crisis of leadership. Um, but it just beggars belief the, um, the way in which, the way in which, you know, um, Peter, Peter uh, uh, Nicholas II sort of farmed out government to his wife and let her run with these, you know, bringing into government these insane characters, you know, many of them depraved, debauched, and horribly corrupt and incompetent as well. And, I just think that, you know, people will be just amazed by that and you know, amazed by the crazy rantings of Alexandra. And I think this will change people's views of, of that, the, the last imperial couple in a big way. Um, but there are many surprising things. You know, I think you know, the fact that the British Secret Service played some role in the assassination and the murder of Rasputin is pretty fascinating mm. too. Mm. Um, and these are just things in the last sort of, in the last sort of section of the book. But, I mean, I think there are, I, I think there are surprising and new things in every in every section, right from the beginning in 1613. So, could you draw a a parallel to uh, Putin now and and the Romanovs, or at least a connection? I mean, uh, it would be it would be grossly naive and simplistic to say that President Putin was um, a new Peter the Great, a new Tsar, or a new Joseph Stalin, for example. But there's no doubt that he's, he's, his regime is a sort of hybrid of, of the two. And there's also no doubt that he's channeling both. You know, virtually everything he's done to restore authority in, in, in Russia, um, to re, to attempts to re-establish his influence in the Caucasus and in Ukraine, to annex um, Crimea, to intervene in Syria, all these things are straight out of the, the Romanov playbook, if you like of what a Russian ruler should do, and out of Stalin's as well. And you know, interestingly, he regards Russian history, he's quite a history buff, and he regards Russian history as a succession of successful and unsuccessful rulers, regardless of ideology. So interestingly, you know, he regards Peter the Great or Nicholas I as great rulers, Catherine the Great, um, Alexander I, but then he regards Lenin and Nicholas II and Gorbachev as failed rulers. Hmm. And while he regards Stalin as a highly successful ruler. So you know, when he looks back at history, he is comparing himself, channeling, um, copying, um, and trying to, uh, trying to co- commandeer the, the prestige of Russia's most successful rulers. And he very much sees himself um, in, in their tradition and wishes to reestablish a great Russia like they did.
So um, one other thing that you mentioned, the, the correspondence with Lincoln made me realize that as a student of history in America, I don't remember hearing much about American interactions with Russia before the 20th century. How much was going on there? Was there correspondence? Was there commerce? Yeah, I mean, there was, there was correspondence. But the most, I guess the most fascinating thing is that Russia had an empire in America then, and that Russia... Um, you know, had colonized all the way down the coast of, of California, down to close to San Francisco, and that they had um, a colony in Alaska. So one of the things that happened in Alexander II's reign, Alexander II, by the way, the one who had this, the highly the highly sexual correspondent who, who also emancipated the serfs, is a really fascinating, quite forgotten character, who um, who's one of the most sympathetic of the Romanov stars. A lot of them aren't very sympathetic, as you as you as you'll know. Mm. But you know, he he was um you know, he was he was close to America, and um uh, he you know he negotiated also the um the return of um the return of Alaska. He's the sale of Alaska for seven million dollars to um to America, which of course may have been a colossal mistake on his part. Since they then found, of course, the Americans the Americans then found oil there, mm. but. But yeah, so the, so in the 19th century there was a, quite a close relationship with America and an alliance. And actually, Alexander II, for example, sent his son, um, Grand Duke Alexis, to, on a on a tour of um, America, where which was terribly famous at the time. It was in all the American newspapers, and he met General Custer hmm. and Buffalo Bill, and um, had affairs with a series of um, New New Orleans actresses and burlesque dancers, and. Um, and, you know, and it went on the great buffalo hunt in the Wild West. And so, you know, America plays a big part in the book, actually. Well, it sounds like there's plenty there for every student of history um, just about around the world. We've been talking with Simon Sebag Montefiore, and you can find his book, The Romanovs, 1613 to 1918, in stores right now. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, amazing and very educational. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. Lovely talking to you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about the upcoming Book Expo America. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Benedict Tracker. I'm the author of the Alex Ferris series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Editorial Director Jim Billiott is here to tell us all about BEA, Book Expo America, and its uh, current stop in Chicago. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. Hey, Rose. Hi. Welcome back. It's been a while. I know. Wow. I missed you both. Well, we missed you, too. <laughs> we really I, did. I'm sure our listeners did, too. So tell us all about uh, BEA moving to Chicago after how many years in New York? Right. Uh, it's been 12 years. Wow. Well, since they've been in Chicago, okay. they've, they've been in New York for about seven or eight consecutive mm-hmm. years with uh, a pit stop there in L.A. and right. one in Washington. So, yeah, they've been out of the Midwest for 12 years, and that's one of the reasons they decided it was time to go back. You know, they're, uh, the show's run in partnership with the American Booksellers Association, and lots of their members who don't live in the Northeast had, you know, not come as often to New York because of the expense and other things. Right. So by bringing it back uh, out to the Midwest... They're counting on getting, um, you know, booksellers from the heartland and also right. from the West Coast. 
Great. So this is going to be May 11th through 13th? It's May 11th through 13th, so around the corner. And, and you and I will both be there. We will both be there. Yeah. Uh, haven't missed one in a while. <laughs> so th- it seems like their strategy of trying to bring in more uh, booksellers from outside of the Northeast is working. Right. Uh, the show executives say uh, bookseller attendance from the Midwest states of Illinois, Missouri, Indiana, Ohio are all up. Right. And that even some of the uh, numbers from the West Coast, only having to travel to Chicago and not, not to New York, uh, those numbers are up as well. Right. But they do acknowledge that they're really comparing things in some ways to... Um, Chicago 12 years ago and the show will probably be up but they acknowledge that in terms of total attendance um, it'll probably be down right hmm. interesting are they doing a book con again as they've been doing in New York yes they are doing a book con on that Saturday it's mm-hmm. one day only last year in New York it was two days and it attracted about 18,000 people for the two day event this is the first time they're doing it in Chicago Book Con in New York has been going a couple of years. So they've kind of gone back to their first year model to suspect that there's an education process. So they didn't really count on the large crowd that they had in New York last time. So they're looking at maybe eight to 10,000 people at BookCon. That's still not too shabby. No, it, it's great. And, you know, it, it's, it's a different audience. As many of our listeners probably know, BEA is the trade show where, you know, the Publishers come and show their their new books for the fall to booksellers. At least right. that's the way it's conceived. A lot goes on other than that, but that's the root of it. BookCon is all directed at uh, the consumers. It's all to show book buyers what's uh, you know what's coming, what's available, also. So, what do we know about the keynote speakers and anything special that's going on here uh, for Chicago? Anything different? Nah, not too different. They're having the usual buzz panels. Uh, I think there's three or four of those where editors of people that, that books are going to be big in this fall will come in and, and talk about. There's it's two and a half days. It's hard to get a judge on, you know, what's the hot book of the show going to be ahead of time. And we'll see when we get there. You know, BEA does attract other shows that are tied to books, book selling and book publishing around it. And this year, IDPF, the International Digital Publishing Forum, they're having their conference uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. And the keynote there is Tim Berners-Lee, who mm-hmm. many people credit with creating the internet. Mm. So I think that's going to be uh, wow. you know, something really interesting. Right. And, and, this, and he's going to be talking about publishing's role and how it can you know, adjust to what's going on, yep. on, the, on today's web. So, um, unlike the two of you, I'm not going to BEA, and uh, I was wondering, have you heard anything from other New York-based people who, uh, you know, have gotten kind of spoiled? That's a good question, Rose. Don't feel Rose. like making the track. <laughs> That's a good question, and you will not be alone in New York. A couple of the major houses, Houghton Mifflin and Rodale, uh, most prominent, aren't going. Right. Some of the smaller houses are also sitting out, and one reason attendance will be down is because in New York... A lot of the staffs of the New York publishers just go for a day or two. Right. And there's, you know, no right. no way that they're going to bring all those people out to Chicago. So from that vantage point, you know, it'll be less people, but it won't necessarily affect the, the business and the transactions and the dialogue between the different people in the supply chain, as if you will. You right. know, the, there'll be booksellers there. There'll be publishers there. There'll be 
distributors there. There'll be media there. This won't be probably as many publishers They're gumming up the works in, in some in some cases. Right. Yeah. So so we're superfluous and you won't miss us. Is, is what I'm what <laughs> as I'm long hearing. As there's more room to run around <laughs> in the halls. That's that's not a bad thing. Well, I can't blame you for wanting that. BEA does get very crowded. So so where is it located in Chicago? What's the conference center? It's McCormick Place. You know mm-hmm. that's you know it's a great conference center. So that's one reason. You know people really don't mind going to Chicago. It was held in Chicago for a number of years just for the very fact that it was a little cheaper than New York and it was more of a central located place where all the all the parts of the industry, you know, could get together. Mm-hmm. Right. But then as the New York houses exerted more and more power, they decided, well, you know, it's cheaper for us if we keep it in New York. So that was one of the, one of the reasons that uh, it's been stayed here for, for a while. So it's really about the, the distribution of the costs. Yeah, well, that's, that's really a big thing. And I do think moving it out will be nice because there was some feeling that it was becoming more of like a Northeast-centric right. show, especially mm-hmm. yeah. for the book buyers, the librarians and and. and booksellers, as we said, who, you know, if they weren't on, you know, on the side of the Mississippi tended not to come. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it'll be good to see, uh, you know, especially for, for us who've been going for years in New York and elsewhere to see, uh, to meet more people from the Midwest. Right. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I'm curious to see how it's all going to work out. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are curious. Yeah. Because um, as we've, you know, mentioned already, it will be a smaller show, but it doesn't mean, you know, it can't work out. And another thing that's worked against it a little bit is that in the international book circuit, the London Book Fair was only about a month ago. Right. So that's going to probably cut down on the number of international yeah. publishers who come. And then the fact that a lot of international publishers did like to come to New York when it was in New York, because they could come to New York and meet with the publishers and, and their offices and do other things. Right. And uh, you said it's May 13th, which is also two weeks earlier mm-hmm. than it usually right. is. Yeah. Right. So I think that affected some people um, as well in terms of, you know, it just didn't really fit into their schedules. Yeah. Yep. I, I should also mention that we've got a, a pretty great uh, pre-BEA issue that uh, uh, folks can use as a guide uh, to BEA once they get there. Yes, we do. Uh, galleys to grab. We yep. better get those and some places to hang out after the show closes. And it also features our uh, interviews with our uh, bookstore of the year, which was Books, Inc., uh, right. out in uh, Northern California. And our uh, rep of the year, Lisa Solomon, who works for the Carl Dutton Group right. um, as an independent rep out there. And I remember we hosted the librarian... Uh, Library Lounge. Library Lounge. We will have that again. That's Great. in the works. Okay, good. So, uh, there's something for everybody at BEA. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. I can see you doing a, a little PSA. We'll put it up on YouTube, a 30-second spot. Hey, anything to help. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Always great to have you here. And uh, thanks for that preview of BEA. Right, thank you, guys. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Bridget Hios. I'm the author of It's Getting Hot in Here, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another deep-diving author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on the best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of book publishing.
In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 